This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the co-hosts of the channel, and today I spoke with Professor Charlene Makeley about her new book, The Battle for Fortune, State-Led Development, Personhood, and Power Among Tibetans in China, published in 2018 with Cornell University Press. This book, based on Professor Makeley's fieldwork experiences in Rebgong, an area of the northeastern part of the Tibetan Plateau, discusses how Rebgong is in the midst of a battle for fortune. That is, a battle to both accumulate as much fortune as possible, but also a battle to decide whose definitions of fortune are going to dominate Tibetan society in the 20th and 21st centuries. It could be a material fortune based in authoritarian capitalism, or a Buddhist form of counter-development based in traditional ideas about language, landscapes, and compassion. Using a dialogic ethnography inspired by linguistic anthropology, Professor Makeley discusses how Tibetan encounters with development projects are, are a historically situated and interpretive politics in which people negotiate their presence or absence of more moral and authoritative persons and their associated jurisdictions and powers. It was a really fascinating conversation in which Professor Makeley takes a very theoretically sophisticated argument and makes it very available to uh, scholars of East Asia and anthropology, scholars of folklore. And I think it will be something that'll be really interesting and, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the co-hosts of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Professor Charlene Makeley, Professor of Anthropology at Reed College, about her book, The Battle for Fortune, The State-Led Development, Personhood, and Power Among Tibetans in China, published in 2018 with Cornell University Press. Charlene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you here today. And I guess, first off, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, My background in terms of coming to a project like this has been pretty circuitous. Um, I I see it as kind of shaped by karmically intersecting with three really watershed moments in Chinese-Tibetan relations. I first traveled as a tourist to Lhasa in 1987 in the summer just before the first major Tibetan protests against Chinese um, repression of, of Buddhism and economic marginalization. Um, I had man- I wanted to stay and actually teach English there, but the whole place was closed down. So I left and went and started graduate school. And uh, during my dissertation research in a, an Amdo region called Lebrang, that was 1995-96, the controversy over the recognition of the 11th Panchen Lama, another watershed moment. And then for my second research project, this book, The Battle for Fortune, I was in this place called Rekong. In 2007-8, when this new and much broader spate of Tibetan protests broke out across the plateau as this 
new generation of Tibetans were protesting the impacts of state repression and state-led development campaigns in their community. So I feel like my kind of academic career has in some uncanny ways um, kind of followed along with these really watershed moments for, for Tibetans in these parts. Um, but back in 1987, when central Tibet or the Tibetan Autonomous Region closed, um, I shifted to begin studying Chinese intensively um, because I wanted to work among contemporary um, populations in China, Tibetan populations. But at the time in Tibetan studies, that really wasn't done. You didn't combine Chinese studies and Tibetan studies. You did Buddhist studies um, and studied Sanskrit, for example. So when I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, I started in Buddhist studies, but shifted to anthropology because I really discovered in, at Michigan that that's, that was my calling. I really was more interested in understanding contemporary Buddhist communities, and in that time, uh, monastic revival, Buddhist monastic revival in the post-Mao reform era. So that was like the 1980s and 90s among Tibetans in these Eastern Tibetan regions. So this is outside of um, the Tibetan Autonomous Region or Central Tibet. It's this incredibly complex, I call it a frontier zone in what is now Western China. And I was focusing on this region that Tibetans call Amdo. So it's most of what is now Qinghai province, uh, southwest Gansu province, northwest Sichuan province. Nowadays, according to the census, Tibetans are a minority in those parts, um, mostly in the big cities. Its uh, regions are dominated by Han Chinese. So uh, in grad school, I delved into learning Amdo Tibetan spoken language, as well as continuing my studies in uh, Chinese and Tibetan language at Michigan. So um, a lot of language study was uh, part of the buildup to this. Uh, and then in terms of the research, my training in cultural and linguistic anthropology led me to really highly value uh, qualitative ethnography or, or fieldwork, right? And there's lots of ways to do that kind of ethnography. Um, but I myself have always wanted to focus on developing more depth of regional knowledge versus kind of like a sheer breadth of experience uh, across a region. So I was all along wanting to build my regional and linguistic knowledge over a longer term. So that's, I can really begin to understand this particular historical, cultural, political nexus in Amdo. When I was doing this work back in starting in the 90s, I really felt like as a white Western outsider and a potential ally to Tibetan communities I was working in, I felt like this approach, this more depth approach, was really the only way to, to, to really grasp the contemporary stakes for people in, in those regions of, of Chinese-Tibetan state-local relations. Um, so my sense of my commitment to these parts has been lifelong. Like people have told me, oh, why don't you just study in a less politically tense region or especially when places close down? And I've never been willing to do that. My, my commitment is to these parts, right? And I think though that there are many incentives and pressures um, in China to, to short-term engagement if you're a researcher. In fact, short-term engagement is baked into the institutional culture of research in China. I call it white jeep ethnography. As social scientists or historians arrive in convoys of jeeps uh, from the city and they interview selected people for a few days and move on, I never wanted to do that kind of work. 
in China. But of course, nowadays, there are really serious political reasons. If you're an outsider and like me, extremely visible there, I'm a tall white woman, um, there are reasons not to be visible long term in a community. Uh, so in the current climate, right, there are reasons to to do more short-term engagements. And actually, I've moved to that kind of work now. Um, one has to keep moving, right? It's It can be too dangerous to your interlocutors to to stay too long. So so that's sort of the, the background of how I um, came to this work and how I think about the uh, ethnography. I don't know if you want me to, to talk a little bit about um, the region, why, why where I did this work for this book or... Uh, sure. Well, I mean, I just love this term, white cheap ethnography. I think that <laughs> that is a very, very apt description of of a phenomenon. Um, so, so, and I guess so. So, you you've brought us this broader background of of your trajectory. How did you get to? Um, how, can you tell us a little bit about the story of this book itself? How did you get to Rigong, and why were you, and what brought you to this question of sort of state led development? Yeah. Um... I had worked in Lebrong for a decade or so, and this is a place in <clears throat> southwest Gansu province that in Chinese, the county is called Xiahe. Um, you know, for over a decade, I wrote my first book, The Violence of Liberation, about that research. But for this second project, I actually was too well known in that valley, in the Lebrong Valley. The th- things had become politically tense there as well after the Panchen Lama controversy, you know, the public security bureau people, they knew me as soon as I arrived in town, they'd be at my door. Uh, So I decided to move to this historically linked um, neighboring region and seat of the Geluksek Buddhist monastic rival of Lebang actually um, in Repgong, which is the seat of Rongwo monastery, also a Geluk monastery. And I, I went to Rikong actually following networks that I had there, social networks. So there are folks that I knew, friends of mine. My best friend was from Rikong. Um, so it seemed like a natural kind of progression. Um, and I also see Lebron and Rikong, including their historical patron communities, Buddhist patron communities, on the higher grasslands around them as part of a larger Amdo-Tibetan and multi-ethnic region historically and at present. So it all, you know, I, the histories I that are connected, I was, I was learning about them as a connected region. So that made sense. And then when I moved to this next project, I, I really wanted to move away from my um, exclusive focus in the first book on contemporary Buddhist monasticism or the lay monastic relationship. And I wanted more of a kind of trans-regional or multi-sided fieldwork across um, the valley, the Rebkong Valley. Um, the Gaelic Rongwo Monastery, in fact, is a smaller and maybe less of a governing presence in that region than Lebron was. Um, and the region felt much more ecumenical and multi-sectarian and multi-ethnic and linguistic. Um, there are other you know, non-Tibetan communities, Salars, uh, Muslims, Mongols, Hui Muslims, um, and also other sects like Burn and Nyingma communities. So it was a really fascinating, um, complex hybrid community. And in the early post-Mao years, um, Rikong had been the site of this incredibly proud revival and creation of both Buddhist and secular Tibetan intellectualism, including great community efforts directed at establishing Tibetan language schools, Tibetan medium schools that people were really proud of. 
Um, there were all sorts of efforts at reestablishing village temple communities, Tibetan Buddhist painting and art circles, grassroots publishing, local history efforts. So it was a really a hotbed of a kind of Tibetan cultural linguistic revival. So really a fascinating region, more, more complex than any one person could ever understand, right? But the battle for fortune now I think of as a kind of sequel, actually, to my first book. And I see these two books as a kind of diptych or companion volumes that are tracing Amdo-Tibetan's experiences and my own in interactions with them of the post-Mao years in China. So I'm moving from the first book and the early um, post-Mao years, the 1980s and 90s, where you had this great relief and optimism in those regions after the horror and destruction of the Maoist years. Right. And the almost immediate enthusiastic uh, revival that happened among Tibetans in those uh, years. Then I moved to the second book, The Battle for Fortune. So that's the early 2000s and into the 2010s. Um, and a time of much more ambivalence I found among Tibetans about their status as citizens and community members in the PRC in the face of breakneck development and urbanization pressures. So I felt like this was the place to think about the impacts of those pressures on um, Tibetans in a, in a broader, more general way. So Reikon was this fascinating and really important place or even an Eastern Tibetan center to explore the complex ways that state development campaigns, and especially this great develop or great open the West, it's called Shibudakaifa in Chinese, this campaign, which was launched in 2000 under Jiang Zemin, President Jiang Zemin, and how um, the kind of suite of, of projects under that rubric were taken up and adapted and resisted um, among Tibetans, for example. So I feel like I, I'm focusing on the impacts of those state-led development campaigns amidst what many people talked about, which is like rising inequality among Tibetans and between Tibetans and Chinese, um, the battle for fortune really tells the story of um, what became the lead up to the outbreak of unprecedented trans-regional protests among Tibetans during China's 2008 Olympic year, right? And then the tragic aftermath of those events that continue to this day. So I really see my book and others work around this time as helping us understand how we got here, how we're now in this really present, tense political moment under Xi Jinping, right? So it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a good way to get a sense of um, a multi-layered process that led up to this moment. And it's not only multi-layered; it's also multi-vocal, right? I mean, you, yes, you, yes, you, yes. Mm -hmm. you say in the introduction you call it a dialogic ethnography, and it's a concept that you explore in chapter one. But um, I, I'm wondering if we can sort of set off now. Um, can you explain what you mean by dialogic ethnography, and maybe how you've applied it to understand issues of development in Amdo? Yeah, I'm not sure how. I mean, there, there are. There's a group or circles of, of anthropologists who've used this phrase before. I didn't make it up. I'm taking it and drawing on their work since, wow, um, decades now, people talking about it like this. But the word dialogic in this phrase, um, at least for me, doesn't really come from the word dialogue in English um, in that 
dialogue in the way that we sometimes use it um, seems to connote this sense of simple, easy intimacy with others on equal grounds. We're dialoguing. We're just talking. Um, but I take up this word dialogic uh, or dialogic ethnography from my training in linguistic anthropology, but especially from the Russian literary theorist Mikhail Bakhtin, whose critique of Stalinism in the 1930s, right, he was exiled to Siberia for these writings, um, led him to conceptualize all language and literature and meaning as inevitably caught up in politics and hierarchy and violence. He had a pretty agonistic view of human interaction. So for him, all language is multi-voiced. So we can only speak and write and listen from within this nexus of unequal social positions. We're actually positioned and embedded as we're trying to um, voice ourselves, as we try to present ourselves to others. Um, and those positions, as we're presenting them, are partially shaped by others' voices and positions. As he famously put it, fully half of one's words belong to someone else, right? You're always citing and quoting and evoking other people's positions and voices. So for me, dialogic ethnography challenges us to put that into practice. Like, What does that mean to be an ethnographer in that vein? Um, I define it drawing on others um, as ethnography is really a negotiated intersubjective relationship between researchers and interlocutors which doesn't mean it's on equal grounds at all, right? In fact, it's highly, can be highly unequal and hierarchical. But what this means for ethnographers, it, it's tough. Um, it's tough in the doing and it's tough in the writing. But for me, trying to implement or bring into being a, a dialogic ethnography entails a much more humble or self-aware, um, or open, or even vulnerable self-positioning in communities, um, and in any text or media that one creates in this process, right? Um, especially as a particularly fraught kind of outsider like me in these parts, right? So this is a, a dialogic ethnography is a kind of interaction um, that is paying attention to how you're voicing others in relation to others, how they're voicing themselves in multiple ways. But it's most importantly about listening and participating on others' terms, right? Which means, of course, in others' languages. And crucially, not just, you know, sitting there listening in a one-way um, manner, but being open to being changed by others' agendas and worldviews and voices, so there's this kind of openness um, and vulnerability and risk that's entailed in dialogic ethnography. Um, and then, you know, this is sort of broadly uh, informed by my linguistic anthropological training, which compels me to put everyday linguistic and semiotic communication processes, how we talk to each other, how we try to understand each other, how we try to interpret each other. I want to put those processes first and foremost, because I think, that process of communication is the very grounds on which the nature of the human, of value, of prosperity, of fortune are contested and created over time. So a part of this is, you know, you have to really start in that nexus of stuff. Um, it's, it's an open-ended thing, but it's also 
a kind of way to think performatively, right? Um, in that the, you have to look at the performative ways that as we enter into communication, we're working with and against others to present ourselves in certain lights, in certain positions, and to also both consciously and unconsciously create and contest various kinds of social worlds. So for me, this is a radically performative approach that tries to understand things as always um, in the making, always becoming, including yourself, right? And even if it's awkward or uncomfortable to write about, right, because you yourself as a researcher and a writer dialogically shape the very context that you're researching. The other side of this, which is really hard to grasp, I think, for um, people raised in Western contexts, in, um, in English perhaps, is that it means taking seriously others' notions of personhood and communication or dialogue or voice. You have to actually think about you know, your notions of communication don't necessarily fully overlap with those of your interlocutor. So I ask in the book, who are important interlocutors for Tibetans, especially, right? And that means, as I discover, um, deities and other divine and demonic beings, or even the dead and the deceased are important interlocutors in various ways in the chapters um, of the book. And the other hard part of all this is that in Tibetan regions, this also means uncomfortably that you have to deal with the political conditions of public silence and deferral and avoidance under what is really a, a pretty strongly authoritarian context, right? And all of this avoidance is also happening around extremely painful memories uh, for Tibetans, not just for Tibetans, but um, in these parts for Tibetans, especially of shared trauma and loss during the Maoist years. So the 1950s through the 1970s, when so much um, went down in those parts under the rubric of democratic reforms, um, and collectivization, um, you know, massive trauma of um, people being arrested and detained and dying and famine and uh, monasteries and temples destroyed, uh, all that happening, right? That stuff has not gone away. That's still there, right? So I say that in the first two chapters that those memories and stories of the 1950s through the 70s profoundly shaped how Tibetans and Mekong actually experienced the 2008 crackdown and its aftermath, even though those Maoist years have been officially erased or kept off stage for decades, they're still strongly there. And I talk about how the 2008 experience actually brought them back, brought them back to the surface. So dialogically, people are also voicing um, haunting voices from those past times as well. So just in the writing then, which is also really hard to do, I'm trying to juxtapose my voice, my multiple voices and personas with those of many others in, in multiple languages and mediums and trying to write myself into the story, right? Because I'm an interlocutor and I'm shaping things as I go, both consciously and unconsciously. And uh, I do try along the way in the book to demonstrate the process of um, my own transformation at the hands of my interlocutors. They had agendas for me, just as I had agendas for them. So I, I hope that helps 
kind of sketch out what I mean by dialogic ethnography. Not an easy task at all. It's actually extremely tall order, and I don't think I fully succeeded, actually. There's, yeah, anyway, I tried. <laughs> well, no, I think, I tried. I think actually... <laughs> I think a lot of it actually comes out quite nicely in in the book. A lot of the things that you're saying here, I, I, I see them quite nicely in, in the book itself. Um, and 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 you've sort of anticipated some of the the follow up questions. Sort of you know thinking about how being attuned to Tibetan inter, interlocutors is re- requires also acknowledging divine interlocutors, the dead, the disembodied voices of the state. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another. I should have mentioned that. All of these are sort of very present when we're thinking about um, the these interlocutors for Tibetan people, um, but also sort of thinking about how you are are open to changing and to being changed, as it were. And 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 I'm thinking about how how sort of in the book when you're writing yourself into into this, um, you're constantly sort of. It's this role of a donor, or in Tibetan, a jindak, uh, a gift master, um, and sort of in, and as you said, always in sort of a state of becoming, where where people are trying to capture you for these, uh, for for the purposes of being a donor, and it sort of weaves in and out of it the narratives um, where these villages compete um, to bring you into that role. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, before we get into the rest of the book, um, what does being a gift master entail and what kinds of obligations does it bring and does it, and, and how did you deal with that in your role as ethnographer and sort of thinking about also what you've just said in terms of dialogic ethnography? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, yeah, I use this term, this phrase gift master, just as a kind of direct calc or translation of that Tibetan term jindak, um, because it, it kind of plays out in some ways um, like that. As a, you know, I, I talk about how I was there at a time, and, and things have changed drastically since since then because of the the crackdown and and the state's response to it. But I was there during a time that I call the decade of the foreigner. Kind of, I use capitals to say that this was like a a time an interstitial time as it turned out when um, Tibetans, especially rural Tibetans felt highly neglected by the state, by state, local state officials, by development projects. Um, They felt like um, resource streams were, were passing them by. They weren't elite enough or educated enough to get the attention of the state. Um, This was also a time of increasing disenchantment. Um, in as the market was expanding and people were drawn into capitalist relationships and people were disillusioned with what they saw as um, some fake monks or fake lamas, uh, feeling like people were more and more venal and um, you couldn't trust some Buddhist elites to have your community's best interest in mind. And then, of course, there was expanding, uh, increasing um what fears, but also anxieties about official corruption, state corruption, as more and more money was flowing into these regions. And so there was kind of a disillusionment with state socialism as well. It was still all about socialism, in Chinese, right? Um, and yet uh, that seeming state compassion 
was not coming to communities. So into the into the breach steps foreigners in this during this decade. Um, uh, one ethnographer, a theorist, called this process of looking for what was it? Looking for um, charismatic strangers or looking for auspicious strangers to come in and help, right? And there, so there's this, this kind of nexus of, of um, things in which people were incentivized to bring foreigners in to play the role of lost llamas and lost state officials or disillusioned state officials. And so it was very uncomfortable for me and I'm sure other, other colleagues I've known to sort of come in and to feel the depths of people's hopes placed on you, and especially Americans at the time. There was a lot of kind of romance of the U.S. and Americans as, as um, some, you know, like supporters of Tibetans. And um, so I, more than even when I was in Lebron, I felt this in Reykjavik where people were like, oh, here comes, I won't say my, my Tibetan name. Uh, I, I use a pseudonym, Tibetan name, Tomo, was my pseudonym. Here comes Tomo. Um, let's, let's, you know, fet her, make sure that she's happy so that she will help us, you know. And I'm not, I don't want to frame this process as, oh, Tibetans were so venal and they were trying to use me. Of course they wanted my help. Of course they, they expected things of me. Um, I'm not at all saying I had one reviewer of, of the book early on was like, oh, you're just saying that you're the white savior. Not at all. I'm trying to understand the complexity of that nexus of um, uh, relationships, but also the weight of Tibetans' hopes and, and um, uh, expectations of foreigners. Some foreign, There were tons of foreigners in the valley, right? Um, this was a time of... I called Rekong really a crucible of development efforts because it became like this model site of development. I counted over 15 countries um, and the UN, various projects, uh, all happening simultaneously with foreigners coming in and out. And some foreigners really relished that role. They could come in and be treated in a godlike way by communities. And um, I was no exception. People wanted me to play that role. So in some ways, I, I, I assented to that role because I also wanted to give back to communities. I had that sort of, sort of moral sensibility. If you're trying to learn things, then I've got to step up and I've also got to help. So that's how I sort of got into the role because like, I, w- I felt like I was going to mm, give back to communities by in the background in a kind of anonymous way I would, I would donate to various communities that I was working in um, the projects that they wanted. And, and at the time it was primary school repair projects. So when I put out feelers for that, that's how I got drawn in. And then of course I talk about in the book how that process was um, more than I had anticipated, more than I had bargained for, because they wanted me to play a much more official and public role than I had thought. Um, because foreigners also had a kind of iconic or symbolic role as um, demonstrating to others just how uh, much attention one is getting globally and transregionally. And it helps put communities and persons on the map to have a foreign supporter, right? So that's how I got drawn into it. I don't know if there's more that you wanted me to speak to, but so the gift master thing is this question of 
who exactly is in charge of the gift? That's the question. So I'm put in that role in sometimes, but in other, other times I'm not. And other times um, there are various other elites and um, both secular and Buddhist elites that, that claim the role of the gift master. And I talk about that as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, I, think that, I think that's a great point. And I think ending it that way will be good because we'll come back to that at the end of the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, getting into the book itself. So you begin with an introduction, sort of talking us through a lot of the sort of the theoretical concerns um, and, and some of the things that we've already discussed. Um, in chapter one, then you start to unpack your concepts of dialogic ethnography, which we started on and the politics of presence, as you call it, um, around the story of how your presence in a friend's home, in a friend's village, and some and and particularly some offering scarves that were brought to you from another village, caused spiritual problems for your hosts. And I'm yeah. I, I'm wondering, can you discuss this? Uh, help our help our listeners understand how this could happen, and also sort of how that how that drew you into some of these important questions in terms of the politics of presence, the importance of hospitality, and these sorts of issues at that highly charged political moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great lead in. Um, it also really speaks to uh, what I mean by fortune, right? right? That's in the title, the battle for fortune. Um, I, yeah, so I start with that story about offering scarves, but I use it to help both um, show my process of learning about this in a painful way, right? And trying to sort of show how um, kind of vulnerable I was to to, to my interlocutors changing me, uh, but also to show what I mean by fortune because it comes out of um, what I learned about how Tibetans themselves experience um, and, and hope for prosperity. So I, I like the term fortune in English because it seems to be broader or um, more grounded than this abstract notion of value that economic anthropologists use. Fortune, I think, better gets at the stakes for people and communities because it connotes something broader. It's it's anything really seen by communities to be beneficial long term. So it's not just doesn't mean just money, having money, but for Tibetans it meant auspicious relations with divine non-humans, with lamas, monks, temples, monasteries, and with auspicious environments. So Fortune gets at a process that's not just about individuals, which is what a capitalist perspective would have us believe, but what is at stake? And this is what I learned through, and I, I start off with that story of the offering scars, because what's at stake is these intense histories and cultural politics of collective fortune at different scales of communities, households, villages, monasteries, temples, whole lineages or territories. Um, and these communities are created anew or they're newly threatened or they're newly competitive under what I call authoritarian capitalism. So 
I start off like to tell this story um, with this example of Tibetan offering scars, which are, you know, anybody who travels in those regions has seen these everywhere. They're ubiquitous objects, right? Um, we just take them for granted. Um, but they're objects of polite exchange among Tibetans. And I say that there's no real utilitarian value to these scarves, but they're just gifts. They're, they're supposed to embrace objects and people. Um, you put them around people's necks when you greet them. And they're, they're benign objects. They're supposed to demonstrate your good intentions. So my host and my friend, my best friend, Droma, told me to get rid of this pile of offering scarves that I had been given by other villagers from other places. I had been treating those scarves as just these inert objects, right? That they're recyclable. I can re-gift them. I'll just keep them in my room and take them when I need them. But she saw them as highly polluting objects, that, that they were angering her um, natal protector deity, Hualdin Hamel. There's this really powerful warrior bodhisattva who is actually the patron uh, enlightened protector deity of the Geluk sect, the Dalai Lama sect, right? But it was her village deity. And she saw me as angering Padilamo and bringing potential misfortune into the household with those strange scarves, right? So I do use the scarves and I use semiotics to think about their meaning, right? What are these, what are these, what does she mean by this? Um, to take them not just as like these routine inert objects, but they're loaded material signs. I call it an index in, in semiotics. I just use that word briefly, but they're loaded signs. And they're, they're signs of, of what are to really Tibetans' own ideologies of materiality and fortunate and ethical exchange. And what it is, is as I'm unpacking all of this, um, and I'm drawing on some anthropologists who are rethinking this, but but Tibetans frame all fortunate encounters in hospitality practices, right? So hospitality practices using offering scarves try to link their sincere minds to their sincere actions. See, I'm I am totally sincere in my generosity, in my acting as a host for you, the guest. And often they're in iconic colors. Too, right? So the emblematic color is white, which is the, pure, the, the color of purity and snow mountains. And so white offering scarves can stand for this ideal altruistic generosity uh, of the host that's at the heart of Tibetan Buddhist social relations in the face of perceived moral decline in the valley. So scarves were really taking on this powerful meaning for people. They're not supposed to be interchangeable easily. They bring with them the motives of their of their givers. And people were critiquing people for giving them too haphazardly. So I really see them, I call them um, kind of mediums of anti-money. That is, they try to work as an object that, that works against the way that money can just come through um, towns and villages and slip from people's grasp and, and, and leave. But with scarves, people are attempting to claim and contain fortune for their particular persons and communities alone, right? They're actually trying to capture and contain fortunes, and scarves are a really important part of that. So a big, a big part of me thinking about the scarves was, was thinking about 
the practice of hospitality. So um, there's a there was a collection of essays that I found really influential, thinking about just how fraught and ambivalent and potentially threatening host guest relations can be. And right, and this is really most centrally what I mean by battles for fortune, right? And it comes out of Tibetans own um, ways of thinking, their own ontologies of human, non-human relations, right? That, that Tibetans actually often feel like they share karmic causality with other sentient beings that are, we're all transmigrating through samsara, but we don't necessarily share forms of sentience and communication with other sentient beings. So you have to really work hard to recruit others, including deities and lamas and monks as allies in your own um, battle for fortune. So the the term that, I'm not the only one who's talked about this, or especially Tibetan scholars have been very eloquent about this, but um, the ground of all human fortune and prosperity is this term yang in, in Tibetan, the, the very essence of vitality and productivity. So in various poems and scriptures and rituals, Tibetans conceptualize yang as this kind of naturally swirling force that gathers to vitalize key social units. So those containers, those, those um, territories of fortune, like households and villages and monastic polities. But yang is slippery. It's, it's a natural force, right? Humans don't necessarily control it. So you have to work to capture and emplace yang. So there's a, in various um, discourses and rituals, uh, there is this notion of the container or a nol in Tibetan. That's the main idiom for this process of capturing and containing. So Tibetans take bodies and material objects as well as important social groups and their associated territories and environments to be different kinds and scales of containers of fortune. So what I really see as a linguistic anthropologist is this really elaborate semiotics of material imminence. <coughs> Excuse me. Like how do you make fortune reside and abide in your um, community, right? So that fortune is seen to abide or be contained in these material vessels or supports, they're called. Right, but you have to work all the time to capture and contain it because fortune, yang, and other forms of luck can can leak away or be stolen by others, and hence Droma's fears about my strange offering scarves. She feared that they were leaking yang and fortune away from her household, unbeknownst to me. Right, so in that process, divine and demonic beings are also key dangerous, capricious guests who must be hosted in rituals and feasted, propitiated and captured and, and appealed to, to um, help be allies um, for specific communities. And this process helps explain in these regions the transcendent roles that Tibetan Buddhist lamas and monks claim, right? So an authoritative um, incarnate lama, for example, can claim to be the ultimate gift master, right? The purveyor of the pure, generous, unreciprocated gift. So in practice, though, communities and lamas and monks are mutually recruiting or entreating each other to help in various battles for fortune with reference to 
whole pantheons of demons and deities that only incarnate lamas through their enlightened practice, because they're enlightened beings who are reborn on earth, um, they, they're only ones who can tame those pantheons of demons and deities, right? So that's their specific transcendent role in all this. So all this is happening, though, I argue in that first chapter, in the process of post-Mao capitalist reforms, memories of Maoist attacks on Buddhism, this widespread disenchantment at the same time, there are widespread tales of moral decline and fake llamas, right? Um, so all of that and, and state-led development pressures um, meant that the revival of these kinds of Tibetan battles for fortune, right, where you are entreating Buddhist deities and demons and mountain deities and all sorts of other non-human um, agents and interlocutors, all of that gets pushed underground or off stage by state-led development pressures and all the media spectacle around them, right? So I call this, in the book, I call this underground process of the battle for fortune, I call it the silent pact. That is, Tibetans tacit agreement not to publicly acknowledge that this battle of fortune is actually going on as a kind of, and I call it a counter development effort in the midst of all these development projects, there is this counter development project happening. And so it's not really a benign process of mere cultural revival, right? Or that culture is just some sort of simple commodity. But what's really going on, and I, I conclude this at the end of chapter two, is, is a struggle to revive and capture fortune for specific communities on Tibetan terms. And so what this amounts to is alternative hybrid modernities, right? It's not a throwback to tradition. Let's revive the past. It's a hybrid modernity that Tibetans want to participate in. And this is, this is where multi-voiceness comes in as well, because this is not about just not kind of like a, um, atavistic look back to these uh, romanticized um, Buddhist relationships. But what they're doing uh, in all of the chapters, I talk about how people are actually simultaneously evoking and voicing three major idioms and um, kind of discourses of ideal exchange and fortune. One of them is this, this Tibetan battle for fortune that I call Lama lay leader alliances, where Incarnate lamas and other Buddhist elites have ally um, uh, relationships with lay leaders in a variety of communities to bring about a, a battle for fortune that will will um, benefit particular communities. And those are grounded in this whole world of invisible, divine, and demonic beings that are uh, that are based in Tibetan ancestral homelands. So that's strongly at stake, and people are evoking that. That's not gone away. That's still there. But a second thing that people are evoking simultaneously and bringing into dialogue with that is Maoist socialism or shui ruyi. But, but the way people evoked it is, is a kind of romantic vision of ideally fair redistribution of resources among national citizens. People still thought of themselves as citizens of the PRC. And the hierarchically administered modern state is at the head of all this. And even Mao himself can be a benevolent figure in those discourses. 
So that's the second thing. And then the third thing that people are drawing on simultaneously, especially since the 2000s Open the West campaign, is uh, what I call authoritarian capitalism, right? So in official discourse, it's dubbed new socialism or but that is a way of thinking about exchange and fortune where you're supposed to display entrepreneurial prowess in new urbanizing spaces. The technocratic state regulates all this, but the natural cosmopolitan force of the market makes it all happen. And so I'm saying the Tibetans are fully in there, um, evoking various aspects of, of these discourses in multi-voiced ways. But by the end of chapter two, I note how by 2007-8, for the first time fully, I think, pervasively since the Maoist years, the silent pact was beginning to break down. So you had the impending Olympics, massive income and status inequality between East and West in China that the Olympics highlighted, increasing development pressures and resource extraction and anger at official corruption and the impending March 10th National Uprising Day in exile among the Tibetan diaspora, which local uh, public security bureau officials were aware of and were planning for. All of that is coming to a head um, in the winter of 2007 with the new year coming about, right? So there's this impending feeling of inauspiciousness and fear. And that's how I end chapter two. (laughs) So much of that is just it, it it feels on the nose. Certainly, I mean, the sort of the, the thoughts about the constant, the performative nature almost of of these various <clears throat> fortunes um, yeah. that people are negotiating in the traditional, <clears throat> the traditional uh, me, uh, versions of fortune where people are constant. I mean, that, that idea of sort of with your true mind performing this true action. I mean, that's, um, but then also having that, in dialogue, as it were, with more with more sort of authoritarian capital ideas of fortune. That certainly, um, yeah. And and so so what you do in chapter one is you're you're sort of in this. It's more at the level of the home, and it feels like in chapter two you move to the level of the village. Yeah. Um. And then so in chapter th- and both of those are in the same village, and then in chapter three we begin to look at development encounters. Um, this time in a different village further up the valley. Um, yeah. You notice that, and I'm quoting uh, here, I forgot to write the page number. Um, people, in fact, sense objects as bundles of selected qualities, themselves linked iconically in relation of likeness and indexically in relations of cause and efficacy to the qualities of other desired or undesired objects, time, spaces, and persons. Um, and for this, I'm just wondering, you know, how how does how did in when we're thinking about these development encounters, and particularly the the village school that that this village is trying to get built, um, how does how does this apply? This sort of sense how people are relating to these objects um, in these different ways, iconically and indexically. How does this apply to the Karnak village school and the physical yeah. and fiscal efforts to build it? Nice. Nicely put. Um, Yeah, that's chapter three. As you say, um, the way the book is kind of laid out is I wanted it to be multi-sided. So I take the reader on a kind of journey from the lowland 
main like urbanizing uh, prefecture and county seat and the the seat of Rome monastery and the main affluent villages so we start there and then we go up up river to what Tibetans called the upper narrows um, to two rival um, villages up the valley and this village Karnak is a is a much bigger more powerful and and fairly affluent village um, and I get drawn into like I said before, working on a primary school repair project that they were interested in. And so then, like you say, I used the chapter to think through um, the very nature of materiality and built environments, because that's such a big part of, of how development projects play out on the ground, right? Is people build stuff. In fact, um, as many Theorists have argued the so-called Great Develop the West campaign in the 2000, early 2000s was really about infrastructure building. It was about the state giving massive amounts of subsidies to corporations to build roads and, and bridges and uh, dams and all sorts of things. So there was a kind of glut of, of building, which was you know seeding the, the economy and all that stuff. But so in a small way, we were caught up in that by getting start, getting involved in this um, repair project in their school. And it turned out to be a, a project of um, building this incredibly elaborate, gorgeous courtyard wall around the school playground that they used um, in ways that I, I never imagined. Like I, I had just suggested I'd be a donor and then I would go away, but they wanted me to be fully in there as an auditor of the project, as a manager, as a mediator, so I learned more about concrete and building projects and building materials than I ever thought about. So it helped me think about how um, material this project, is, this process is, the battle for fortune. It's, you know, I think about semiotics and meaning and language a lot, but that is all caught up in very material processes. So uh, rethinking materiality um, helped me um, think about various objects that were really crucial to um, bringing value and fortune to this village. Like why, why such an elaborate, gorgeous wall? Um, and so I bring in some theorists of semiotics um, and linguistic anthropology who, who think about material objects as themselves signs, right? We, we, we never encounter objects as sheer objects. We have to encounter them because of who we are as humans. We encounter them as signs to us. They mean things to us, right? Um, and so I, that quote you just gave was from Webb Keen, a uh, linguistic anthropologist, who talked about how in various ways we encounter objects as these bundles of, of meanings and signs. And those bundles don't necessarily overlap for everybody. Like we, there's lots of contestation around what an object means. And that's how actually our building project in the village played out. It became this um, incredibly fraught conflict between my friends, Gendin, who was this hot headed idealist, Tibetan idealist and Drakpa, who were, um, who was the local education official, in a much more staid persona, but they were friends and they were affines, you know, so we went into it together, but this incredible conflict emerged around the very nature of the wall uh, that we were building and especially of concrete and money. 
So I take the the chapter to think through what are these objects that you know that we take for granted, right? They're very routine objects, but money and concrete, as they are used in practice, um, become taken up in this Tibetan battle for fortune in in really unanticipated ways, right? So. For example, I rethink concrete, which is um, in the larger context of PRC development, which is like this massive industry that was unleashed across the country, actually massive polluting industry, um, as a kind of magical or ritual medium, right? Like it, think about it just like any other uh, medium of value or, or meaning that is people had great hopes for what concrete could do for them in, in rural areas. And especially in these previously neglected primary schools, which were just mud courtyards and mud packed walls and their buildings were falling down after only 10, five to 10 years. Right. So concrete could show that local officials were bringing value, bringing fortune to their communities. Um, So I see concrete, not as inert or artificial stone, but as this shifting high stakes meaning uh, medium of value um, because it was meant to sort of, how to say, show, first of all, that the village and the school were modern. Um, it was supposed to show a kind of smooth cleanliness and orderliness out of what was previously disordered mud. It was supposed to help create modern kids as striving subjects, all sorts of things, right? And this, the wall, as it turned out, was the most elaborate school wall I saw in the whole region, <laughs> as it turned out, right? So I don't wow. know if there's more that you want me to unpack no, there. but That's great. I mean, I think, I think so sort of thinking through that, that materiality and how that plays in is also really important. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And and then you go from there to another village further up the Upper Narrows, if I'm right, uh, called yes. Longmo Village. Um, and in this chapter, this is chapter four. You then you're you're looking at sort of where village histories, um, with history normally being a realm very tightly controlled, uh, almost exclusively by the Chinese state. These village histories providing potentially a <clears throat> counter narrative, where where it again sort of refocuses fortune. And the village itself in spiritual terms. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a really it was a fascinating contrast because these are neighboring villages, but their their fortunes under authoritarian capitalism were radically different. This was one of the poorest and most marginalized village communities in the valley. Um and so my role there was was very di- the role they wanted me to play was very different from the other one they both knew of each of each other and they knew of my um, participation so there was competition and jealousies um but the role they wanted me to play was as a as a listener and a kind of avatar in some ways to the state and to other um elites uh, to, of their their own histories, their own ways of talking about their um, village story, because what was at stake there, something very different, um, was their the very kind of auspicious sovereignty of their claims to be stewards of their own territories and lands. So, um, like in chapter 
two, I think, where I talk about an affluent town down in the valley. As it turns out, you know, state-led development projects were all about um, Tibetans changing relationships to their lands. And that's also one thing that's kept really off stage in media, state-led media, right? But it was discovering just how much people felt in this particular village that they were being pushed off their ancestral lands or their territories. They were um, being kind of herded into low, a lower level village down down the, mon- the mountain from their previous village, which was up on the, on the peak. And that's, they were up on the peak because they were in part livestock herders. They had some, far, some fields up there, but they were also livestock herders and that's how they um, lived up there. But they were kind of um, pushed to, compelled to move down to um, the valley floor because they were given incentives. They were, I call it a carrot and stick process that state um, elites were kind of putting pressure on them to say, you should move down. It'll be easier to be more efficient. If you move down, you'll get these resources like a new school. We'll help you get um, a water supply. We'll do all these things for you if you comply. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they did comply. They were actually, I talk about how they ended up complying. They were one of the first villages to actually do that, to move down to lower settlements in a process that now is pervasive across the Tibetan plateau of pressuring highland communities to come down and settle in lowland regions where they can be more easily disciplined and integrated into urban settings and, and market forces. Um, and so they did that. They were kind of the, the vanguard of this. And they discovered instead that they were highly impoverished and marginalized. They had to um, sell all their livestock. There they were stuck on in their houses with no real means of subsistence. And so you had this kind of evacuation of the village as people went out looking for wage labor, right? So they were kind of being proletarianized as they were forced to come down. So I end up in there as a listener to multi-voice stories about that process, about um, why that happened. What do we do now? How do we, um, how do we secure our future? And so I would, you know, I talk about how shocked I was at how even Tibetan local officials could treat poorer villages and villagers as um, really kind of in marginalizing ways, right? Just talking down to them, a lot of condescension, not a lot of listening going on in these these encounters. Um, so, but I talk about how actually proactive they were. They had, um, especially this this fellow, this guy who was a good friend and host of mine, Dorje Gyap, incredibly canny visionary for what the future of their village could be. And so um, he helped spearhead a couple forms of uh, local history projects. One was a, a secular kind of history of the village that was aimed to be really a petition to the state to say, look, we've done everything. Why aren't we getting resources? We're being... Um, kind of it, the innocent poor. We are impoverished here. We need your help. We are good and careful stewards of, of the land, right? That was happening simultaneously as Dorje Gap was also spearheading um, a, a Buddhist inflected history through a video that they filmed 
And the video was all about touting and um, justifying the building of this gorgeous brand new temple down in the valley next to their new village. And that temple was supposed to put them on the map as a Buddhist patron community again. Um, and so the, the video was a very different story of the past, which was all about really recruiting um, this charismatic Lama, one uh, Arotsang, who had been this famous Lama based at Rongo Monastery, um, a reformist, powerful Lama in the 1930s, um, actually 19th century. Um, this, And it turned out that the second Arotsang actually established this village as his patron community. So they were trying to relink their history to the Arotsang Lamas, except that in this process, this period of disenchantment and disillusionment, the current Arotsang had left the monasticism. He had left the monastic order and was a layman who didn't want to be a lama anymore. They had lost the fourth Arotsang. So there's this process of Dorji Gap and other elders actually going out and in a grassroots and organic way, discovering their own fourth Arotsang, the, the, the lineage holder, and bringing him to their new temple, which included a whole gorgeous um building and, and um, living quarters for him and then a teaching place where, where they could have teachings um, under this new Lama uh, and uh, basically put them on the map as a, a new kind of upper valley hermit Buddhist hermitage, right? So that was their really proactive way of trying to um, secure the fortunate future of their village. And so that's me getting caught up kind of in that same way of um, huge expectations placed on me. I hope I did did them well um, to listen to and tell these various stories. It's so fascinating the way that mm-hmm. the way that villagers and, and and particularly certain agents, certain stakeholders are able to advocate so well or or, or so particularly in these ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that does come out really well in, in this chapter. Um, from there, you take the final chapter, brings us de- back down in towards the, the prefecture seat yeah. um, with this chapter. And I believe this is also an article you've published on spectacular compassion. Yeah. Um, and so it yeah. examines Rebgong's responses to the Sichuan earthquake in 2008 and also slightly to the 2010 um, Yushu Jiekundo earthquake. Um, yeah. And how these, pu- and, and I think you're, you're talking about. Oh, so, so how do these public displays of Buddhist compassion pit Buddhist monks against state leaders as well, uh, as well as Buddhist paradigms of fortune against sort of more material paradigms of fortune in, 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 in this, in this valley? Yeah, this was, this was one of the most intense chapters to write. I mean, like you said, I, I first wrote it and published it as an article, and then this is a, a more fleshed out version um, that links it to the rest of the book. Um, but it is me thinking through that last part of this, what I see as a very tragic story um, unfolding of increasing misfortune brought to the valley um, in uncanny ways, right? So having this Olympic time that I frame the whole book in, and Olympic time is really the way that the Chinese state framed it was in not a secular way, but really in a, in a millenarian way, right? It was a s- secularist or nationalist story of this great triumphant re- 
uh, arrival of national prosperity and fortune that the Communist Party had brought to bear. And we're all supposed to be moving toward that, that wonderful thing. But at the same time, that same exact year, extremely inauspicious things are happening. And it's not just Tibetans who are noticing, but all across the country, Chinese netizens are writing about, oh my gosh, there's so many inauspicious things happening in these seemingly natural disasters, weather events and, and terrible accidents. And and the worst of all, um, for Chinese especially, was this massive earthquake in, in May 2008, you know, 90,000 people dead or missing. It was the scale of it. It was an, a 7.8 Richter scale, huge, huge, huge. Um, but inevitably among Tibetans, earthquakes um, unleash theodicies or ways of thinking about fortune and misfortune. Like I start the chapter talking about how there is no such thing for Tibetans as a natural disaster, right? Um, that's somehow separate from the interventions of sentient beings, both human and non-human, right? So any massive disaster like this, and I, I also say that the military crackdown um, before in the run-up to the earthquake was a, was a massive misfortune, unleashes among among Tibetans like the, the desire to understand why is this happening? You know, there are all sorts of things happening online as people were talking about that misfortune, um, and so I used the chapter to sort of think about the dialogue that this ma- most la- massive scale misfortune brings about, right? So we're back to, we're, we're leaving the more micro village scale to come back to the national scale, national scale events like the Olympics, like the military crackdown, like the earthquake brought to the fore, this national scale dialogue between elite Buddhist monks and lamas on one hand and state central state leaders on the other, because um, they called on these elites to care for those who had suffered these misfortunes. Right. And so it plays out um, in what really like most of this is me under house arrest, pretty much trying to understand through through um, censored media what was going on. But it really seemed to be playing out for me in competing death rituals, right? Um, and I talk about in the chapter, you know, drawing on Foucault and Mbembe and others, but, um, you know, biopolitics, which is the state claiming to be the moral manager of life for their populations. But I also talk about necropolitics or the management of death as something that states want to claim for themselves, right? And that this is not necessarily a secular thing. It's very sacralized. Um, and you get really in the aftermath of the earthquake, then this these competing efforts at what I call humanitarian claims to spectacular compassion, like really on stage in the media claims that, you know, here's the state holding these um, mandatory um, um, moments of silence for earthquake victims. So for three minutes, you were supposed to, the whole country went silent except for these sirens. And then also Tibetan Buddhist monks and lamas across um, Tibetan regions holding um, Buddhist funereal rites for the earthquake dead. Right. And so it's just it's such a fascinating way to think about how those forms of humanitarianism, forms of care for the untimely dead, 
can clash and overlap in really complex ways. You know, so I say throughout this chapter, my my sense after having been there through the crackdown and uh, the earthquake is that when Tibetans were holding those funereal rites, um, the untimely dead there were not just for the earthquake dead, right? And there, of course, I should say tens of thousands of Tibetans were affected uh, by the earthquake as well. But there were also for the the, the deceased in protests and crackdowns and for the Maoist dead who were still haunting people um, as they were experiencing these misfortunes, right? And so that, you know, the, the, the chapter is sort of juxtaposing those very different kinds of death rituals and attempts to try to resolve and care for the untimely dead, right? You know, versus the state wanting to kind of silence the untimely dead and put them to rest, right? So that death for the scientifically minded technocratic state is just biological cessation. You just, you're done, you're, you're gone. And we just, we, we recognize that we, we have a ceremony and then everything should move on. Very different from a Tibetan Buddhist um, cosmology, right? Of, of the deceased still being transmigrating beings who need care from the living. And there's this urgent necessity of 49 days to hold the right, the protect, the, the right protecting um, rituals, so that they could move on and not continue to haunt people um, in their kind of either hungry ghost or other types of, of demons. Right? You they you want people to move on, so. Uh, <laughs> They, they don't necessarily um, come together. They're, they're clashing um, forms of caring for the dead. And I, I kind of end the whole thing with the opening of the Olympics and the ways in which the Olympic flag-raising ceremony tried to resolve all that again and put it all to rest in a story of this unified, harmonious nation, right? But I end as I did in other chapters with um, what happens at like the, the beginning to see the aftermath of this 2008 um, time, which was what I call the ongoing disaster of untimely death in Tibetan regions. So uncannily there were two more national mourning days called for Tibetans based on um, so-called natural disasters, which were in part actually human made huge avalanches in Jochi and, um, and this massive earthquake and people crushed in shoddily built buildings in Jekundu. So I, I end with that, and that moves us into the epilogue, which takes us into um, the aftermath, the, the increasingly tragic aftermath of the next few years. Yeah. So so the epilogue does look at, I mean, in, in this in, increasingly tragic aftermath, I I'm wondering if you could, if we can just sort of briefly discuss it because I mean so so the decade of the foreigners sort of comes to an end shortly after 2008 I I mean I feel like yeah. it was still there were sort of the 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 death rattle when I first started getting there in about 2010 2011 um, yeah. but uh how has Reb changed since that initial 2007 2008 field work and yeah. and how and and can you take us sort of through this aftermath yeah yeah the epilogue sort of tells that story because i returned to follow up in 2011 and 2013 uh, and the, the 
pace of change, and people have talked about the pace of change across China, is unbelievable how how quickly things can can be built and and environment shifted and all that stuff. But it was it was breathtaking um, how much had been built and changed over that time. But I kind of in the epilogue, which is only about fifteen pages, but I take us back in order to understand that rapid process, almost back to the very beginnings of the whole story, which was this half Tibetan party secretary, Li Xuansheng, the the party secretary of the prefecture, whose own development goals um, for creating Rekong as this on-stage culture industry that would commodify Tibetan Buddhist culture for tourists and others, his launching that those development projects um, at the same time as he was actually offstage launching and cult- a project to bring in corporate resource extraction, especially mining, right? Those projects simultaneously were happening starting in the mid-2000s. Um, I say that it's his design, right? This is, this is his kind of technocratic development planning that launched the battle for fortune that results in the 2008 catastrophe and its aftermath. So I tell the story, I back up to tell the story a little bit of his planning and his vision because I have a, I had a, um, an essay he wrote for an investor's um, uh, like brochure and he was laying it out in really sh- like stark terms as almost a new cultural revolution, the way he was uh, framing it for investors. He was saying we have to, in really stark terms, crush Tibetan pastoralists and farmers' backward ways and bring them into the future. Like he was really talking in militaristic terms in a way that uncannily presages the military crackdown, but also now the the crackdown under Xi Jinping, which some people do liken to a new cultural revolution. But I tell the story of this through this um, this character of Droma, the, the Tibetan Buddhist female Buddha or Bodhisattva. He brings in this massive statue of Droma, this three-faced statue of the compassionate um, female Buddha, and puts her in this new concrete plaza right in front of Romo Monastery, this brand new plaza. And he calls it Culture Plaza as a way to sort of be the, the center of his new vision for the valley. But in fact, the plaza was shoddily built and it crashes and and destroys households down below it. You know, so I take it to be almost like a, a microcosm of what was to come in these um, development projects and then Tibetans' own counter-development efforts to kind of push back and rebuild their communities and ensure their own auspicious sovereignties because this this figure of Droma, it, she's such a microcosm because she was um, on the plaque. I don't know if you've seen it, if you've traveled there, right? But there's Droma a plaque Square, that says yeah. that the main donor was the, one of the most massive Chinese um, mining corporations in the, in the country, um, sort of prefiguring that offstage thing where Li Xuansheng was inviting them in to do prospecting and uh, uh, various forms of mining in the county and the prefecture. Um, and so what happens is people are beginning to become desperate as their their lands are being appropriated. There's more forms of resource extraction happening, mining, influx of um, construction and builders and Han Chinese settlers. 
And what you get then is this tragic spate of self-immolation by fire protests. And and Rekong was um, a a seat of those protests, just like Lebrong was and Ngawa was. But I counted 15 self-immolators who were from the larger region of Rekong, all of them from rural regions who came to lowland valley places. And four of them chose to self-immolate on what came to be called Droma Square in the center of Rigong. And so I kind of end with, with that, that is Tibetans take over that square, they call it Droma Square, and they take over and re- repurpose Droma as their avatar of, uh, of, of support and Buddhist care for these newly deceased protesters. I mean, it's incredibly, it's, it was one of the hardest things to write to, to talk about how that came to, to Rip Gong um, mm. and the, just how that devastated the communities there. And people are still reeling from that and then from the crackdown on those protests, right? Um, so I, I, I leave it there, you know, with the story of me um, being hosted yet again up in Karnak. Um, but it was a much more ambivalent and fraught um, encounter, a, a so-called picnic, right? And I, we leave the picnic with Tibetans there saying, we're, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep trying, you know, we're, we're, we're resilient. We're going to keep, keep, you know, working hard or whatever, but it, it, <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard place to leave it, but that's, that was my final like um, visit back was mm-hmm. in the midst of all of that happening. Yeah. So that, so you can see the trajectory. It's starting from the mid 2000s all the way up to the mid 2010s. Um, and this, this decade of, of escalating protest and military crackdown. It's just, you know, the crackdowns did not stave off protests. They in fact escalated it until we're, we've, we've come to where we are today, which is this really tense standoff. Right. Well, I have to say that this book is exceptionally difficult to talk about in just an hour mm-hmm. and a half. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like we could probably go on for several more. I know, um, I know. <laughs> but we've already used a lot of your time. Yep. So I'm wondering if I can just ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. And that is our sort of standard final question. What are you working on now? Yeah. Um, I was actually low profile about this until recently. Um, but I've been, this, this new project I've been working on about three years now, but it came organically out of all of this because um, I want my projects to grow from what Tibetan, my Tibetan colleagues and interlocutors are interested in. And what was coming out of this was um, for me, this in- incredibly important figure of the 10th Panchen Lama um, who Tibetans still grieve to this day. He died uh, in an untimely way in 1989 at the age of um, 52, I think. Um, but he had such a role to play in the um, what people call the second Buddhist dissemination in those parts after the Maoist years. When he came out of house arrest prison and returned to those regions um, to reopen Buddhist sites, but also to re-advocate for Tibetan cultural and linguistic um, uh, revival and Tibetan language education. And so 
Uh, his death was just a huge collective blow for for especially Amdo Tibetans. And so I was hearing so many stories about him and, and um, grieving for him to this day, including young people, new spates of um, of new pop songs lamenting him and, and mourning him. And of course, we have the absent um, 11th Panchamama, who people still think is under house arrest somewhere. There is a, an official 11th Panchamama who has a very ambivalent status, but um, it's still the 10th Panchamama that people look to and talk to and, and, and lament. So we're looking at um, working um, collaboratively, but what we're doing is a kind of oral history project. We're trying to talk to people about their memories of the Panchen Lama, the 10th Panchen Lama's uh, visits to Amdo regions after he came out of prison. And so mm-hmm. we've traveled to, gosh, 10 or 12 Amdo uh, rural places and towns. And we now have an archive of about 80 uh, recorded interviews with people talking about that time. And it feels very timely because the folks who remember it are themselves becoming old and, and dying off. So uh, it feels kind of urgent to us to to have a record for that. So I'm thinking through that process because that is also very fraught in the current political climate. And that's what we're working on. Hopefully Sounds there'll fantastic. be some sort of, yeah, some sort of interactive website we're thinking about too. But right. yeah. It sounds really valuable and, and really excellent. I can't wait to to start seeing seeing the fruits of that labor. Um, Thanks. Well, Charlene, uh, thank you very much. Um, it's been wonderful to have you, and um, yeah, look forward to that to that next set of publications. Yeah, great to talk with you, and thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs>